Oh, good, good. You're Joel? Yeah. Hi, Joel. I live right around the corner. Oh, wait. Yeah, we've met many yeah. times, yeah. mainly at John and Carol. Yeah. yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, if Jose didn't say my last name, there's no way for you to know that. No. Well, I'm thinking Jose, and I'm thinking someone of Jose's generation. And <laughs> Yes, I'm definitely not that. <laughs> Welcome to Conversation on Tap, a sardonic podcast that seeks to promote intelligent dialogue in an age of echo chambers and self-segregation. Pull up a stool, pour a glass of tasty beer, and join us each week as we talk about all of the topics you were told not to discuss in polite company. My name is Joel. And my name is Jose. So and this week, we are going to be joined by Professor Roger Hall, professor at Hancock College, to discuss the protests against the coronavirus protection measures. And also where coronavirus ranks in U.S. history, which we touched on briefly earlier in in an earlier uh, podcast. But, Jose, uh, let's first talk about what we have on tap. What are you drinking? So this week, I'm drinking Blue Moon, a Belgian white. Nothing fancy. Uh, It is a wheat ale, 5.4% alcohol content. There's a hint of orange and uh, coriander, which I guess some people call cilantro. It's a smooth drink. It's delicious. Um, perfect for like a hot, warm, sunny day, like at a barbecue or something. What do you got, Joel? I am drinking Heineken in, I guess, in memoriam to our failed uh, future trip to Hawaii. It was just sh- shut down. Uh, I don't know if you know it, but Heineken is the uh, state drink of Hawaii. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. So uh, my wife bought a whole bunch of it. It's just a real typical lager. Man, that sucks, Joel. I've never been to Hawaii, but uh, my heart breaks for you nonetheless. Yeah, very sad. But come on now. I can't stand all these rich people bumming out about them not being able to do their richy things while we have definitely we have students who are probably living three or four families to the house and, and really going nuts. I think we've got it good compared to a lot of people. Oh, we totally do. Well, I gotta get drunk, and I sure do dread it, cause I know just what I'm gonna do. I gotta get drunk, I can't stay sober, there's a lot of good people in town. I'd like to hear me... And now for the segment of our show that we call Fred Talks. In this segment of our show, Joel and I will each share one thing that we are passionate about for two minutes, though we tend to be a bit long-winded, so that isn't a strict time limit. Uh, This week... I kind of want to just take a few minutes and uh, talk about these magical words, hocus pocus. So the words hocus pocus actually originated in the 17th century. It was like a phrase used by jugglers and magicians, maybe people who were involved in um, at least outwardly looking like they were in witchcraft. Um, it was kind of one of those. It was one of those phrases used to mesmerize or to impress or astound audiences because it sounded latin right it sounded exotic and mysterious people didn't really know what it meant so we have incorporated that into our movies like harry potter or into magic shows today and it's kind of a cliche like i mentioned but the archbishop of canterbury in 1694 indicated that the words hocus pocus were a perversion of the latin words of consecration during mass those words were hocus corpus meum 
So you can hear like hoke est corpus kind of sound. Yeah. Hocus pocus, right? So yeah. Hoke est corpus mea means this is my body, right? Which is what the priest says. Those are the words of consecration during mass. And I guess there are some people out there who kind of dispute that because it's not a hard fact, right? That you would just have yeah. this, one, this one source who says this is the etymology of that phrase. But um, I love, I, think- I love etymologies i i think it's so fun and by the way whenever there's anything that's difficult to learn to remember i immediately go to the etymology and then i can almost always remember it but that is such a cool thing yes whenever you hear hocus pocus just think oh yeah that's a perversion of the word spoken at mass over the bread and wine so by by the way I i would love to know have you ever been to a latin mass i have never been the traditional latin mass i've never been apparently it's amazing yeah, I've got some people that I know who will only go to them. Actually, one person that I know. And there's a lot of singing, at least the one he goes to, a lot of singing. And um, it's supposed to be really beautiful and kind of high mass. And it would be fun. It's the highest mass, the traditional Latin mass. The the priest faces ad orientum, which means facing east. Ah, He doesn't face the parishioners, right? He faces east. Is that right? It's almost like facing Mecca. It, it's the exact same concept, yeah. Um, That's it, so East is the idea, I guess, Christ returning from that direction. I don't. Okay. It's all in Latin. Lots of incense. It's very. It's a very high mass. We use the Vulgate, right? The Novus Ordo. We use the New Order, right? Right, yeah. and of course that was a huge controversy um, when that happened. Uh, and I'm sure that you're not on the side of those uh, traditionalists who wish you can go back, but. There, it's funny because in a Lutheran church, the same thing happened. There, my dad talks about his um, great grandfather, or whatever, and there was such an uproar because they went away from German. <laughs> they were super taken. In fact, there was a huge split in the German church in the United States because some people wanted the English. Uh, liturgy we wouldn't call it the mass and and there's a ton of germans who wanted to keep it german <laughs> so it's, you know fun. we'll find a way we'll find ways to to be pissed at each other yeah it, it's the same concept it we're not split but there's definitely i mean we're not there's not a schism to use that word right we're just kind of culturally split and we do have those right. like traditional conservative catholics who are very snobbish i only attend the traditional latin mass i only right, right. To masses where the priest faces ad orientum. Yeah. I'm like, get over yourself. <laughs> get over it. Yeah. But anyway, hocus pocus. Yes, that's it cool. has origins in, yeah, in the mass. So anyway, that's my nice. goal. What do you got? Well, I'm going to get back to my one or two. I was determined to stay with psychology and and maybe psychological fallacies. This is probably more of a logical fallacy, but but I really ticked it. I think it's mainly young people, but it's it's any kind of – I think they're naive people who are pushing for perfectionism. So I'm going to call this psychological syndrome perfectionism, and I just think that nothing is perfect. There's a ton of, of people, young people especially, who are out there saying, you know what, if it's not perfect, forget it. Uh, and it's usually actually coming from the left. The naive left. Joe Biden is the perfect example. He is so imperfect. But man, you you always have to say, is it better, not is it perfect? But anyway, this is, uh, you know, a lot of things. Democracy sucks. 
but it's just way better than anything else. You know, people right. are so naive when they don't get that. It bugs me. This is a long way of getting to this documentary that's was recently put out by Michael Moore and a producer named Jeff Gibbs. It's called Planet of Humans. And he totally, Gibbs, totally excoriates environmentalists in it. I haven't watched it, and I really hate critiquing things I haven't actually seen, but I've read enough articles on it. He actually, Gibbs and Michael Moore go after Bill McKibben, who's an awesome, awesome environmentalist in it. Um, and they go after the Sierra Club because, you know what? We're not perfect. For instance, biomass is one of the things that we're using. Um, and they go after it, I guess, a ton in this documentary. And it's not perfect, but it's a heck of a lot better than burning coal. But um, here's, a, here's a Fred fact. You know, a lot of people think biomass, when you're burning biomass, you're, you're um, letting carbon dioxide in. You're just letting all that smoke into the air, which is true. And tons of people don't realize yeah, but that, that's not fossil fuel. That is stuff that would biodegrade anyway, allowing the same amount of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, whether it's you know going to be burnt or whether it biodegrades naturally. And a ton of people don't get that. But anyway, I just think that um, this, this documentary is the perfect example of perfectionism gone wrong. And I know there's a great article in Vox actually written by a gal named Leah Stokes, who's from University of Santa Barbara. She's an environmentalist uh, professor there, and she's done a ton of research, and she just does a great job of uh, exploding the myths in this documentary. Okay, I totally agree with you, 100%. I, I have these friends who are to the left of me who just absolutely refuse to support Joe Biden, and they, and they make the perfect the enemy of the good. Right. Yeah. That's the, so Joe the Biden I was looking for. is not, you know, a hundred percent checking off all of their boxes. So therefore, he's just like Trump. Yeah. That drives me crazy. He's no better than Trump because he he worked with Chris Dodd on banking reform, and so that means he's in the pockets of you know the big banks or whatever. Or he doesn't, you know, he has a folksy kind of way of speaking, this folksy charm. So therefore, you know, he's dumb. Or he, you know, has a, a tendency to invade people's personal space, not in a sexual yeah. way, mind you, just like, you know, encouraging people, hands on the shoulder, and apparently that makes him a sexual predator like Trump. I mean, it's, I don't know, I totally agree that turning the you know, perfect into the enemy of the good is just bad. I, I wonder if, because one thing about Christians, at least some Christians, is they're really good at understanding their own faults and their own sins. And I'm wondering if, if that's something being lost by people who are getting away from Christianity and, and the, the tenet not to judge others. I'm wondering if a lot of people are way too ignorant of their own faults. We are all so imperfect, you know, and Christianity maybe does too good a job telling us that and, and centers too much on our sins, at least the one that I, the Christianity I grew up with, Never talked about humans' um, greatness, only our, our, you know, our fall. But um, I just wonder if there's some kind of connection between liberals and getting away from Christianity and, and understanding not to judge and that we are all so imperfect. I see that among my, my Catholic and Christian lefty friends, too, though. I think it's just an American trend, or, or maybe it's a global trend, I don't know. But it's, a, it's a, definitely a political trend among the youth where they've lost any sense of compromise, 
of meeting someone in the middle. It's no, it has to be my way. And it's kind of like the pro-life issue on the left where it's like, nope, if you're pro-life, you can't, we don't want you in our camp. We don't want you on our team. Oh, it's horrible. Hate that. Yeah, and it uh, it drives people away from, um, I guess, what I think is the right decision is is to vote against Trump and and vote for Biden. But um, yeah, I I, okay. So we both agree totally. I know we've talked about this before. And then just to the biomass issue, real quick, I've heard people use the biomass um, issue as a way to defend fossil fuels, where they're saying like. Well, you have all these poor people in Africa burning trees or burning cow dung or what have you, and that's creating carbon dioxide way more and you know, <laughs> way worse than me, you know, driving my car. I guess this is the main point of this Fred talk: is the difference between burning fossil fuels and burning carbon, you know, life things that grow, you know, including cow dung. You know, it's crazy. Exactly. People no. don't understand the difference between those two. No, totally different. And even though it all went wrong. I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah, hallelujah. All right, so for the main segment of our show, uh, we are joined by Roger Hall, a history professor at uh, Allen Hancock College. Actually, Roger was um, my professor, my favorite professor at Allen Hancock College, so we're glad to have you here on our show. Thanks, Jose and Joel. Before we begin, though, I just kind of want to ask you um, just to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mostly grew up in California, and I grew up in Fresno. And then um, in the mid-'80s, I, um, I'd gone through Fresno State. I, I'd lived out of state for a year, and uh, I went to Ohio to go to um, graduate school and I decided I wanted to be a history major, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I think I'm really good actually now being at a community college because you have a lot of lot of people that are kind of finding their way through. And it was somewhere in that process, and I can't really pinpoint it, that I decided that I really liked the idea of talking about history. And I was really enthralled with the idea of actually getting paid to talk about something that you liked. And that was seemed like such a seductive thing. And so then it became years of how do you get to a position to do that? So I went through graduate school and did the, um, you know, student teaching and tutoring and, and things like that and, and pestered professors to get into classes. And then pretty much like a lot of people now, uh, I did part-time for uh, about three years. Uh, this is all in Northwest Ohio. I was living in Toledo at the time and um, applying for jobs all over the country and have a huge stack of rejection letters. Uh, uh, no kidding. I still have them. I don't, I don't know why. I, I don't even think, you know, growing up in Fresno that I had heard of Santa Maria because, you know, you go straight to the coast, you go to Pismo and or Monterey or San Francisco. But I, I did remember applying for the college and uh, that there were strawberries on the, uh, on the brochure. But somehow I made a deal with the devil, I guess, because I got the job. And uh, I have been very, very happy. I've been here since 1996. And I, and I truly say it, it really is my dream job. 
I've never wanted to go anywhere else. I mean, I, I part-time a little bit at Cal Poly just for some variety and, and to see some students. But I really, as I say, I think I'm suited for the community college and, and I love the Central Coast. So in a nutshell, that, that kind of summarizes 58 years. So, <laughs> so. And then you also just mentioned to us that you are in charge of uh, some kind of a group, a teacher's group, or uh, yeah. what is that all? We're all, we're all unionized, uh, except for the management, but I'm the uh, president of the, uh, the full-time faculty. Generally, all the faculty are in one group, but we're independent in that we're not affiliated with any, any professional or national or statewide union. We're just us locals, and the part-timers have their own, and the full-timers have ours. So in some respect, we're competitors, although it's generally we were pretty convivial but um i've been uh i've been in the union as a, an officer for getting close to 20 years but i've been the president this will be going on my sixth year and and certainly this last year is as as it is for everybody is is full of all kinds of experiences you never expected but i like it it's it's a a job where you can you can make um, you know some impacts make a difference. So I'm kind of a person that kind of keeps taking on stuff. And uh, as I said, uh, it's been a, it's been a good ride for me. So I'm, I'm still on that kind of adding on things and, and moving on and having students, former students like Jose, and, and just to see how they how they turn out. It's, it's just a joy. Not that I have much credit for, for all your accomplishments, but it's nice to keep track of some things. Yeah. Well, I definitely give you a large degree of credit. I, I, one of my teachers in high school really encouraged me to go into teaching and to teach history, but then going to Hancock, and by the way, my experience at Hancock was amazing. I ended up transferring to UCSB, uh, where I got my degree, my bachelor's, but I feel like my experience in Hancock was much better, uh, especially in terms of you know having a relationship with the professors and the staff there. Yeah. Um, and now I teach history at El Camino, and uh, I'm also on our, you know, local teachers association board. I'm the secretary. Not that fancy, but yeah, I have a tremendous amount of respect for you, and so glad that you're with us today. Yeah. Well, you know, there, there's something about the community college student that I, I just so bond with. They're uh, they oftentimes they don't know where they're going or exactly what they want to do, or they're they're unrealistic, and I think that was all me, and uh, and and so it's it's really great. And I've learned over the years that sometimes a comment or a, a little something you write, you never know what what will be that that turn for some people. Uh, the the people that influenced me, I I unfortunately I never really went back to them and said, you know, you were the difference, but they were. And sometimes it was just watching them. And it's like, wow, I wish I could do that. Uh, you know, I, you know, that's, wow, watching a person give a lecture or it's like, you know, how do you know when the class is over? But he never looked at the clock. And, you know, they, they just, you know, those kind of those kind of things that you get or as you know, as teachers, when you get away from having to use notes and you can really kind of go free form in, in a classroom, it's. It can be a real joy. So yeah, and I and I'm really glad you guys have continued on and 
you know, doing podcasts and all. So yeah, it's, it's a fun, fun stuff. Yeah. We, we definitely have to give a shout out to all the JCs out there for, uh, I mean, just lighting fires under tons and tons of people's feet for who have no idea what they want to do in life. And they've just catch fire in junior college it's amazing how many friends i have who got their passion from jc's it's just yeah. awesome uh, i started at a community college in maryland and and honestly had no idea was just take basically taking classes because my parents told me to go to school part-time and i just but why and but it's like you know i like this subject i don't like that subject process elimination can get you <laughs> can get you there so definitely I, i've always liked history I, I i can't i can't really explain it why but uh just i have some kind of affinity to it where some subjects i just i will never really cleave to them but history it just just does something about the human quality of it so and um i i totally agree with that i i try to incorporate uh the joy and the humor of history and hope that uh it's communicated to my students as well because you definitely communicated that to us yeah, um thanks yeah. one thing i wanted to ask you about because we're going back to school potentially in the fall we might start the year off with distance learning we're not sure that it hasn't been resolved yet but what is alan hancock college doing well uh, Hancock, of course, like many schools in the middle of this semester, uh, basically it was right at our spring break, uh, then suddenly went remote. And the anticipation was, let's get through the semester and, and we will, you know, we'll see about fall. But they made the probably conservative practical decision a couple of weeks ago that all of the fall semester will also be remote. They're technically separating it from online because these are not classes that were initially prepared to be done in this remote format. Uh, mostly it's done through uh, Zoom. Uh, th they want to do it synchronous. They want to have lectures on the, on the times that they're scheduled. They want students and the instructors to, to be meeting. If it's Tuesday, Thursday at two o'clock, then that's when they meet. But I've seen a lot of formats. I've seen dance classes, astronomy classes. Of course, I do my history classes, and and people are are finding ways to do it. I think one of the things that it it's pointing out that we're going to carry into the fall semester is that colleges are so built to be social institutions. All schools are that that's the the thing that that students and I think the the teachers really miss is as the interaction and just sitting in a room with a bunch of people and you know like a lot of things you take it for granted and realizing that we have another semester uh, of doing it in this remote format is then giving you the challenge of how can we how can we make it more personal for students and what one of the things I'm seeing and, and have been experimenting with is that opening up your Zooms early before the scheduled time so people can just chat. And some people are kind of doing the check-in, how's everybody going, uh, what's going on in your lives. I, like many uh, teachers, I'm sure, put out kind of a, I called mine COVID-19 and me uh, as an assignment, just how's this affected you? And the things people tell you the, the, that they reveal that, honestly, I don't think they would have revealed in a 
typical class setting is uh, is really um, moving. And sometimes it's, you know, I don't really get along with my family, and now I'm forced to be with them. <laughs> and uh, or um, you know, I have to take care of my little sister because there's no daycare because she's home from school, and then I have to make lunch, and then I have to th- and then I have to do my studying, and then that you know. And we all basically learn in the community college how how hectic and difficult a lot of people's lives are. But but the the appreciation of what they're going through to stick with it is you just think you've got to do more for them. And um, so so that I think is our challenge over the summer is to figure out more ways to do this. I mean, of course, the whole CSU system is going to be online for the semester. I don't know if the UCs have decided, as you said, you guys are are looking at going back in the fall. I, I so wish we could. But for me, it looks like through the rest of the year, we're going to do it. We're going to be online. And, and I think all the community colleges are going to be in the same situation. I, I'd like to touch on something that you brought up about the social aspects that totally get overlooked with with school, not just JCs and, and four years, but but our school. The demise of college has been talked about for years. And what these people don't realize is college is more than just the academic part. You know, yeah. it's the partying. It's the it's this place to be able to make mistakes in a very safe, fairly safe environment. It's just um, it, that's why it'll never go away. And and the, all these people that predict that we're going to be able to somehow go to like teleconferencing for all of education. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. Well, you know, the. Um uh, the chancellor of the community college system, one of his pet projects is a, a fully online community college, um, which, uh, I mean, there's many things I think to criticize about it, but the enrollment uh, has been very, very lagging. And I think, Joel, as you're saying, even in a basically a commuter school like Hancock, where you don't have on-campus housing, People do come together, and what they're saying is they miss even the short conversations, uh, meeting people, yep. uh, meeting faculty, but but meeting secretaries, meeting classmates, meeting, you know, uh, of course, I've been there long enough, meeting children of people who took classes, and I've, uh, there's one family, I think uh, they've had like six children come through my class over the years. There's always another uh, one of these children. And those kinds of things are to be celebrated. And yeah, you you can't replace them. We can do Zoom meetings. We can do whatever the the mechanism is, but we're not built to be in, in little video boxes. I think that's one of the, I, I think there'll be several positives to come out of this overall terrible situation. Uh, but one of them is, I think, when you take something away, then you do appreciate what you've lost. And I think people will come back with a kind of a celebration of, you know, this is, this is why people go to restaurants. I mean, it's yep. not this. They don't want to make food. They want to be around other humans, and <laughs> and they want the chatter and they want the you know the incidental contact. And um, I think school absolutely provides that. Uh, as I say, I don't know where it was that I kind of found my footing to what I wanted to do, 
Um, but then, then I needed people to guide me. I mean, I would literally go to somebody and say, here's where you are. How do I get to where you are? You know, you need that kind of personal, Hey, I'm watching you help me. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, it can work. It can work. Definitely. We're, we're social animals. There's no way that we can go through life relating to one another through a screen for sure. Uh, I wanted to ask you, well, actually, no, I wanted to mention that you also uh, were my mom's teacher, <laughs> Beth. Cool. And then you were also the teacher of, um, well, I don't know if you were my uncle's teacher, but I think you went on a trip with him, uh, Ernie Houston. Yeah, I remember Ernie. <laughs> so, and then my cousin Ernie also. A lot yeah. of my family has uh, gone through your uh, your classes. Yeah. Um, so I love that social aspect of mm-hmm. um, school in general, but the community college as well. It's more personal. Well, you know, most, most history is personal history. Most of it's unrecorded. It's in our memories. It's it's stories that we know. It's just like you were saying, those connections that, that we have that you know that makes up part of your history and your family's history. And uh, I mean, to me, that's, that's one of the things I like about history is that, you know, it, it should be as intimate as a single person or a couple people. And, um, and the connections just grow over time. And so, yeah, I didn't realize even some of those people or that many people connected with you had gone through classes with me. So we, we're, we're, yeah. all, we're all doing this dance together. So. And all good reviews, by the way. So, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. so Roger, I, this question just struck me, and it's kind of a, just a fun question. Is there a period in history that you just love more than any other, or not necessarily? A period? Um, well, I, I am partial to to U.S. history, which I've, I've, I started as European. Uh, and really, I like the 1920s and 30s. Um, partly, I really like the art, uh, the architecture. I think in a way, I, I, I probably should have been born a century ago. I, 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 that's part of my appeal to history. It's, it's not so much being a Luddite. Uh, it's more just kind of liking the brick and mortar and plaster of things and the solidness and, and that there's nothing. I, I think I've never gotten completely comfortable in the virtual world here i am doing a podcast um (laughs) i like i like the um i like old movies for that sense that what you see is everything in that scene there's there's nothing electronic there's nothing there's no one listening there's nothing outside it's what you have there and and as i say i really i like the art deco and art nouveau eras and uh but there's something about the the 20s and 30s that just has has fascinated me i've grown to to like california history a lot just by teaching it uh over the years it used to be my my hardest class because i i knew the least amount about it but i've come to appreciate the state a lot more but if i had to do something over and over again i would I would say, give me like between the end of World War One or or the beginning uh, to World War Two. <laughs> that would be the that would be the time period for me. So okay, 
And and one thing, it's it's a misnomer. I think some some people or students have that. Well, if you teach history, you know you like everything. Oh, there's so many topics in history I don't like. I'm bored to death with. I'll sit and listen to other people, and I'll say, "Why do they talk about?" I would never talk about those things, and I, I just can't get my mind around it. And you can be a little self-indulgent in teaching history, and that you you can talk about what you're really interested in yourself and try and get the students to, to come along with it. I'll talk about things I'm less interested in, but, but that's my sweet spot is that, that early, early period. Although there's always time periods. I mean, I could talk about Abraham Lincoln a long time, but the civil war itself, not so much, (laughs) much more interested in the causes of it or its effects, then I'm not typically a battle person. I, I don't like to go through military history so much. Uh, it's it just it just doesn't appeal to me. And I have a lot of people sign into them. That's one of that's one of their favorite things is military history. And they know far more about. I had a student last semester come to my office, give me a half an hour lesson about Thompson machine guns and the history of machine guns and the different types and all, and you're, wow, okay. (laughs) (laughs) got his passion. (laughs) So kind of along those lines then, we are in this moment of history that is really unique with all of this coronavirus pandemic, the the health guidelines, the shelter in place, social distancing, like the new cliche, I guess. We've been on that theme on our podcast for the last few weeks. And in doing research on that, I came across a letter to the editor, uh, to the Santa Maria Times editor that you wrote. And uh, that's that was kind of the impetus for me reaching out to you. You basically wrote this piece that called out the protesters. Uh, and the title, I don't know if you came up with the title or if the Santa Maria Times came up with the title, but it had to do with the fact that we really can't resume normal, you know, life as we knew it beforehand without a vaccine. Mm-hmm. So kind of what, what prompted you to write that letter? Yeah. Um, a, a lot of the letters I write usually are in reaction to something, <laughs> either another letter or something I see. And, and actually the Santa Maria times does come up with the titles, but that one I thought was pretty accurate. Basically, Looking at the protesters, and and uh, there were some photographs that went with that story. They're protesting the stay-at-home issues, and they they want to resume their lives. They they use a lot of a, a, a American Revolution, you know, don't tread on me, freedom over tyranny. I mean, this could be 1773, and and it just it struck me that you know they're protesting a government, but. But the issue is really a virus, and um, the government is just trying to grapple with it. And so that was the point of my writing, is that you can protest it. You can reopen. I mean, you could Donald Trump could go start holding rallies you know, next week if he wanted to. That There's nothing to prevent it. It's just all of this is being done with, with tremendous economic and and human harm, huge human harm economically and, and the, the massive losses that will take years to recover from. But it's being done because of something that, that we haven't got a, an ability to control. 
And so I just thought it was kind of ridiculous that people are protesting illnesses. And it's that they're trying to minimize the reduction of loss of life. I mean, you know, and, and all the people who survive may come along with, with a lot of issues, health issues. And, and I just think it, it is a kind of classic American idea of individualism and and the the freedom that that we have enshrined and given ourselves but but so often it is it is just i thought in those cases kind of um mindless that i think all the protests uh, uh, i understand the impetus for it but but i have to say i think they're they're mindless that they're just they're protesting against i mean Governor Newsom, none of the governors want to harm their state's economy. It's almost like that's our job to try and protect you. And you have this groups of people saying, well, we don't want to be protected. Or and probably in their mind, they don't think they need to be protected. Or it's kind of, I guess the third option is that it won't happen to me. You know, that kind of faults, you know, it, you know, we live in California, but I'll never get hit by an earthquake. It just won't happen to me. So I'm not going to worry about it. And I, so that's, that's why I, I wrote the letter. And, and I, you know, you, if you saw the story in the pictures, you know, the people weren't wearing masks and they're all close together. And you had a, a congressional candidate out there shaking hands with them. And, and I thought, you know, this is, it's become almost like a, a political become a politicized uh, uh, virus that you know are you going to wear a mask or are you not going to wear a mask and if you're independent if you're freedom loving true american you're you're not going to follow these rules and it's like that's the kind of the state we have developed <laughs> Your, your mentioning of the Revolutionary War uh, reminded me of something I saw online. It was a gal who was holding up a, a sign, and it said, give me liberty or give me death. And I had to think if she was actually taking that literally, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah probably more than Patrick Henry meant. Um, <laughs> I mean, really, I want to die. But yeah, uh, it's, I, I saw one that was on the lines of, it's my body, I can do what I want with it. And it's like, well, sure, but it's going to potentially affect other people. And how could you not make that step to that, you know, to realize that? But so, yeah, that's, you know, I, I understand, but I, I, I think personally that, that those people don't understand or they willfully don't understand. They, they just, I mean, to be using those slogans, I, I think is just, they're out of place. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of my question next is the spate of protests that we're seeing right now all over the country where does that originate or is that just something that's in the dna of you know the american or is that something new i think it was bred into the dna of americans i think i mean if you go back to the um, and i assign a books of primary reading so students read a lot of things from from these uh, entities these groups that formed during the revolution and a lot of the, you know, I see a lot of problems that led to the revolution. I understand why it happened, but 
a lot of it really was um, kind of more of a maturation of the colonies and, and they economically didn't really need to have the controls that the British had. And the British made a, a lot of errors. But when you read the literature of the of the coming of the revolution, a lot of it's very hyper exaggerated. And um, the most common word used in the literature that has been analyzed besides liberty was slavery, that all of these taxes, these policies, these, you know, lines of you can't cross into this land or they, I mean, it was all, they're enslaving us. And, and I think that's where that DNA started to build with Americans that my freedom, my liberty is so important, is so significant. And it was said for years, so many times. And then, of course, it was said and enshrined after the revolution. We created this government built on liberty. And that word again, liberty and freedom, when it was somewhere in the beginning of the Gulf War, maybe it was in Bush's second inaugural, George W. Bush's second inaugural address. He used the word freedom, something like 40 sometimes, you know, you know, and you just, you just hammered with this. It's your freedom and we're liberty. And so when you get a government that says, in a sense, artificially stop doing what you're doing, don't go out of your house for a while, people will go along with it, but not too long because then those ideas start to percolate up. Hey, wait a minute. I'm an American. And that's not what Americans do, you know. Uh, we, we first of all, we're we've always been a little bit anti-government. We've always been suspicious of governments, which is why we had the revolution in the first place. And there was all the we don't trust the government. We, you know, and that's another element of the of the DNA of of Americans. And so it, it makes sense that you get these protests against stay-at-home orders where no one can really enforce it. I mean, not not really very effectively, but it's it's taken on a life of its own. It's been politicized. And of course, we have this muddled messages from, from the top about stay at home, but it's okay. It's voluntary. Uh, wear a mask, but you don't have to. Uh, the president's not going to. Um, you know, the back and forth, which only adds to that uh, you know, I'm not going to put up with this. It's it's the old, uh, if you know the movie Network, you know, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. It's that, not articulate, but I'm just, uh, that's it. I'm drawing the line. And that's a very American <laughs> idea that uh, enough's enough. And, and I think as we enter into the summer season, you're gonna. It seems that all the states are opening up some. We'll see what the what the effect is on uh, on on the virus and the rates of infection. But people are gonna, in a sense, vote with their feet, and I think they're gonna bust out a little bit <laughs> and see how it goes. So it's it's interesting. I mean, science tells us that these places that are opening up really early are just autom not automatically, but very, very likely to have more deaths. And so it's interesting. I Do you think, Roger, that after they get more waves of death, that they will actually learn from it or that they would just continue going on their merry way and, and just saying, well, we got our freedom, so it was worth it? 
I, I think there there would always be a, a tipping point where some governors, uh, because I think governors really are the ones calling most of these shots. More the federal government, in my opinion, is just kind of abdicated by not having a clear policy oh, for people. Ridiculous. And so I think that if if there is a, a a large increase in some states, they will cut back again. There's an illogic to some of the opening up restaurants saying if you open at 25 or 50 percent capacity, well, that's a money losing proposition. There's <laughs> a point to it for customers to come and see everyone wearing masks and they take your temperature and they seat you distant. And well, you know, that's not the that's not the purpose of going to the rest. That's not the experience they want. So I think some of these may just kind of flop on their own. It's hard to say when will people feel comfortable to crowd into a uh, a concert and be shoulder to shoulder with thousands of strangers. Uh, you know, when will they share? You know, sporting events and this this idea now that well, let's reopen them without without spectators. I don't know how many spectators you would get. There, there'll be some, you know hardy or reckless or whatever you want to call them that would would go uh but i think most humans have a pretty good sense of self-preservation and and if they see uh you know a, a correlation between increased infections and deaths and loosening of restrictions they're they're gonna pull back it's like it's just like i get this question sometimes about the great depression well where'd the money go and I said, well, it didn't disappear. The jobs didn't dis- the, the 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 land, the skilled workers, the factories. That it's all there, but you got to get everybody, in a sense, to buy into it. And yeah. and and, yeah. and it's not gonna, it's not gonna. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna walk point. I'm not gonna start buying a new car. And when my job and my future is uncertain. And and what we've had is some many years now of since the recession of people feeling comfortable spending money. There's always stories. Yeah, quarter of Americans are paycheck away from disaster. Fine. And until it happens, people will live with it. Just like, you know, there's a good probability of, as I said, like earthquakes. I'm not going to worry about it till it happens. Then when it happens, oh, then everybody pulls back. And so I think that's that's going to be the problem of getting people convinced that it's safe to start using discretionary income. Your job is safe. Your health is safe. And it's a, an enjoyable experience. And until it is an enjoyable experience, what's the reason to do it? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, I mean, I think. Clearly, we found that meetings, which are never really the most enjoyable experience, a lot of them can be done remotely. But it's those other activities, the Friday night poker game and stuff. When when will people feel comfortable doing that or taking trips? And I think I think humans, certainly from what I've read about it, are I mean they haven't lost all their their moorings, their senses. We're seeing the kind of the outliers of protesters or demanding, you know, things be reopened without really thinking it fully through as to what that would actually be. It's easier to protest. 
<laughs> yeah, so along those lines, um, I just saw a recent CBS poll that found that two-thirds of Americans believe that we should continue to stay home and practice you know, social distancing, and etc. Um, only a third believed that we should disregard all safety concerns and yeah. go back to work regardless of any risks. Yeah. And uh, a deeper question in that poll found that 88% of Democrats agreed that we all need to stay home to flatten the curve. And only 38% of Republicans believed we needed to stay home. The poll found that 62% of Republicans, 62, believed that, nope, go back to work, let's save the economy, no matter the risk to their own life, mm -hmm. let alone the lives of the people they encounter. So I think you're right. It is kind of a small number of people. It's an outlier. But I think there is like an ideological component to this. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's remarkable that when people see Trump, uh, his polls have certainly gone down. And a lot of people think that this might be his downfall, that they would actually want to open up the economy for, for politics sake. That just shows how deeply, deeply political and polarized we are. It's crazy. Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know where, if it goes, starts with Watergate or it goes back to the Vietnam War or maybe something through the 60s, but the, the cynicism and distrust of government has led us to somebody like Donald Trump, who is elected as an outright cynic of government, not a, not a Ronald Reagan that government has too many regulations, but but a Donald Trump saying, your government can't be trusted, so elect me the head of your government. And that has only, that polarization has just expanded so much because his entire political success is, is predicated on division and, and turning the people who are distrustful in this you know, deep state, uh, it's a hoax, everything's a conspiracy. Yeah, I think that's where you see the political division that if you're more conservative and, and you know, certainly a Trump supporter, and you absolutely see that with the protesters, it's almost like their campaign rallies. I, I just see nothing but Trump and Pence signs. I never see a protester with a, a Biden sign. I, I haven't seen one. Um, why they have any political signs would be another question, you know, but... True. <laughs> but this is the president who says, stay at home, wink, wink, you don't really have to, because they're all lying to you, even if it's my people. And, and that's his snake oil genius, that he can talk out of not just two sides of his mouth, that, that he can say this and that, and he can bash people while he praises them because they're his people. I mean, it's easy to call him just you know a negative, derogatory name, but he... He's a nefarious genius in that he he is able to was able to obtain this this power when he's so completely in, inept and incapable of actually performing the duties I believe of of the office. Yeah. He has no respect for it whatsoever. And the problem is that you have a truly serious national emergency, and and you have a. Uh, uh, <laughs> totally over his head, um, doesn't even really care, has no empathy for humans, as far as I can tell, and almost the worst person <laughs> you could imagine yeah. to lead us. Seriously. So therefore, 
you have the kind of mess that we have. I would say, though, just in terms of history, that I'm one of those persons that that skipped through a lot of, I've come to recognize as many how significant diseases have been in human history, but but I skipped through the Spanish influenza. I spent a lot of time on World War One, and now I'm working a whole lot on the Spanish influenza talk and and pairing it up with with what we're going through now. And there are a lot of similarities. You had people first. The the federal government was in denial uh, in 1917, 18, uh, as as this administration was. And then it downplayed the actual degree of the problem. Uh, It tried to distract and disrupt and blame others. But also the ordinary, you know, American chafed at being told uh, to wear masks or to close down theaters or restaurants. You had protests. You had outright defiance. You had people who carried forward with activities that led to a lot of, of uh, infections and, and deaths. And so, you know, 103 years later, 102 years, people aren't entirely different in their, in their responses. And, and the science was just as it, you'd expect, those cities that, that pushed and insisted on more quarantining, had lower rates of infection. San Francisco was one. The public health you know, officials were, were just chastised, castigated. I mean, how can you hurt my business and close all these things to deny all this? And Los Angeles had a much worse situation because they, they were more open. And, um, and the consequences were, were just there. Political cartoons then, you could run them again today. Uh, just change the names of the people. Uh, you know, Anthony Fauci is a villain to some people because he's so cautious and conservative. He's just speaking science. You had people a century ago in the, in the same situation. What you didn't have was a federal government that was that was as chaotic as as this one. But it did go through a, a period of denial uh, that it really wasn't a big deal and. As the flu went, and unfortunately, probably how this will go, it'll be in waves where things will seem to be okay, we're we're all right, and then it's going to come back. And unless they get a vaccine, something very effective, it's it's gonna it's gonna continue to harm us. So definitely Um, doing that lecture. I always felt like historians are kind of uniquely able to talk about the future, just because you know they've got the wisdom of the past, like. And smart people have totally warned about this for years, right? Bill Gates and all these other smart people. Like, what does history tell us is going to – are we going to learn from this? Or – and if, if we are going to learn from us, how, how are things going to change in, in your opinion? That's a good question. You know, I, I don't subscribe to the that where people say history repeats uh, as much as I think human nature doesn't change a lot. I think that people yeah. who went through this – definitely will they will change their patterns to a degree some of them just like if you went through the great depression you can see how much better asian countries are doing with this because they've gone through it way more than we have yeah i i think i mean there will be some some uh i i don't know what the the whole new everyone seems to be saying whatever the new normal is and it won't be like the old normal but i think People do have short, as a, as a group, have short memories. We've got 
lots of new things always pushing into our conscious and we have lots of distractions and people can move past things pretty quickly and they're forgotten. And I think that's the part about, you know, human nature not changing that much. I mean, you know, after the San Francisco earthquake or the Northridge earthquake or any of the other, you know, one of the, one of the basic lessons would be don't, don't build structures on fault. <laughs> But people want to live where they want to live, and they will well, yeah, that happened, but that was in the past. And I think, well, we had this, and now I think once, once we do get a handle on the virus and, and have a treatment, whenever that is, I, I think people very much want to be able to say, okay, that was, that was over, that is over, and now we're done with it. Sometimes we pass legislation and then say, okay, well, that's taken care of now. We can move on, even though the problem's still there. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think that uh, that's what what will happen is that people so want to resume their version of normal that they they will insist on it by by willfully forgetting things, and it'll be yes, that occurred, but it's almost like nine eleven, although that was such a short term in the event. But already, you know, you ask people who were young and like, yeah, I heard about that. But but what was the profound effect? And and they'd have to research it. It's not really our common parlance to say, here's the effects of that. Here's what I mean. Some societies do kind of focus more on their history. The United States is we're a forward thinking country. You know, we're we're always. (laughs) It's another part of our element of we're looking for tomorrow, and we really only want to look at the past to, uh, in a sense, to have a nostalgic uh, appreciation of all that we accomplished. That's what we would like to have. Um, and and we have a hard time when things don't fit into that, so we kind of like to skip through those things. So this, depending on how this turns out, this may be this may be one of those those moments that it seemed like a bigger thing than the way it actually turned out. Say five years from now, yeah, that happened. Uh, I'm not sure how many people suffered. I don't know, but you know, thank goodness we got the vaccine and we're good now. Yeah, <laughs> you know, Joel is. Awesome. Joel is totally salt of the earth. Brilliant. <laughs> I can hang out with you a lot, Jose. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's it's true. Everyone everyone loves Joel. Um, not so much not so much me. But oh, geez. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. I've accepted it. Um, but Joel several times has in the last, you know, couple of months kind of pondered the question. Where does this fall in terms of history? Like in terms of the worst thing that's happened, maybe in American history. Is this like Vietnam War or is this like depression or is this like way lower than that? Where would you put it? Another good question. Uh, For the U.S., I'd say uh, I'd say it'd be in the top 10 of worst things, but maybe in the bottom half of the top 10. Uh, It's not a great depression. I, I can never quite understand how people endured and struggled uh, 13 years of, of economic turmoil. Uh, I mean, that was just so awful. I mean, 
And and even though we have this patina of World War II, the great generation, and absolutely the outcomes were so positive, but so much more deprivation and, and huge loss. I mean, 400 and some thousand lives and, and so much suffering. Uh, I mean, this isn't that at this point. I don't see that. This is not the Spanish influenza, but that's the thing. The Spanish influenza, like me, like most of the people, I can't recall it ever being taught to me when I went through school. Yeah. That killed somewhere between six and 700,000 Americans, uh, more than any war in our history. Mm. And yet it gets almost no mention because we focus on what humans do to humans. And, and we want to forget those things. Yes, if you live through that. I mean, I live on Speed Street. The the, the man who's uh, the street's named after, his son died of the Spanish flu. Um, you know, in the military and was in a training base in Los Angeles. And the family was not allowed to go even claim the body for a while because of the prohibitions uh, that, that were banning public gatherings, including funerals. So it all just becomes part of a story that most people don't know. I didn't know that till a few years ago, and I was just researching something about World War One, <laughs> and and you come across. And I'm always interested. Why is a street named who? You know, who's this person? Who's that person? So yeah, this is this is a, a profound effect. Of course, we're in the middle of it, so we don't really know what entirely will happen. Uh, I mean, people have said, is this the end of handshaking? Is this the end of kissing on the cheek? Is this the end of hugging? I, I doubt it, but it, it there may be less of some of those things. I don't think people are going to keep with social distancing. But I think some of the things people, as I said, will find this is kind of convenient or it's easy once you put up a plexiglass shield, is there a reason to take it down if it helps uh, prevent the transmission of ordinary flus or other people coughing on you? I don't know. We may get used to that. Uh, but I think we'll go back to crowding ourselves into things at some point. I think this this has the potential of, of harming people as much as the great recession. It'd be interesting if we find ourselves in an actual depression. I think the key to this is how long is this going to last economically? And we're all, you know, the three of us are in this weird bubble of being teachers and finding we're not losing our jobs. Well, so many of our students or your parents of students are losing their jobs or reduced pay or something. And those could have, you know, very profound effects on on society. I don't know how fast things will recover. Clearly, lots of businesses are going to disappear. Uh, usually, when that happens, new businesses are created. But this is such an unusual economic, you know, equation. It, it's not going to follow the, you know, just as you know, nobody's ever, in a way, created their own uh, recession or depression globally so we'll see how how that plays out and that could of course make it a more profound uh event but at this point i think it's just so early it's hard to it's, it's hard to say but I, I i think it's certainly one of the the top 
things. I think it's more significant because it, it has such a broad effect and a global effect. But will we reestablish relationships with uh, trade relationships with China that have broken? Will they? Will we recreate and reconfigure this global economy of the last thirty years? Now that would be profound if if uh, if that doesn't get put back together. Um, but but you know one of the one of the things about that is that global economy also is one reason that we have had fewer wars. And if you break up the European Union, if you break ties with Asia, if you, you know, if the United States really does become its own entity in manufacturing or more than it was, there's more chance of of global conflicts of the military nature. And wouldn't that be terribly ironic? (laughs) Yeah that it led to it led to that kind of, of outcome. I, I don't know. I mean we've gone through I, I don't think again people have thought that since World War II, I mean we have not had that kind of war that we had had kind of regularly. And part of this was the Marshall Plan and the United Nations and, and particularly then since the eighties the, the the globalization of, of the economy and that countries need each other. Now, if we're going to become, you know, pull up our walls, and that's that, I think could be that could be one of the, of course, whether or not the Trump administration continues for four more years, um, you know, that will have a lot to do with those relations because he clearly uh, does not like international organizations or or agreements. So, God forbid yeah. that, huh? Yeah, yeah, I'm 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 as afraid of of what's going to be happening with China uh, as coronavirus in the future. It could go south so quickly. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Well, you know that China created the China virus in a laboratory. <laughs> there's lots of 5G so towers. At- I've been told by people there's 5G towers. Everything, you know, that you put out there, it's 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 interesting that some group will latch on to that and, you know, and that, that's one thing in history. You, you, there's too many conspiracies. There's too many alt histories to ever even keep up with it. You used to be able to say, no, no, that's not true. I, I mean, I get sent stuff pretty regularly by students saying, and not about just this, but is this true? I saw this. I heard this. Uh, you know, Last week, a person Martin Luther King wasn't killed on the uh, at the Lorraine Hotel. It was it was a cover up, and it's it's like where does this come from? You know that covered it up, and and this person that he was smothered in in his uh, um, with a pillow in the hospital where they took him, and he was killed by government agents. And I said, holy cow, <laughs> you know. It's, yeah, um, I don't. I automatically disbelieve ninety nine point nine percent of conspiracy theories, and I think the the Bill Clinton Monica Lewinsky scandal pretty much, you know, cinched it for me because you had two people engaged in you know illicit behavior, well, and somehow that became an impeachment nationwide scandal. So how is the government going to do anything with hundreds of bureaucrats or thousands of bureaucrats involved? Yeah, um, and they're all going to keep quiet somehow. I don't. I don't believe it. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, that as I say, that makes it harder to predict about how people will, you know, what will become history because it, it's kind of an open question that if more people just start questioning any, everything, I mean, I always teach it, there's facts, interpretation, and perception. And perception may or may not be true. But if more people just begin to perceive that, well, there really aren't facts. That's where we are. Yep. We're in a patent fact world. Yeah. I'm kind of either out of business or it doesn't really matter what I say. I'm not sure which. That um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're just going to dismiss everything or, or revise it in, in a way as, as – the administration is trying to do on a daily basis to say, no, this happened, no, that didn't. And, and, and this, again, uh, just to, to beat up Trump once more, that you know, a person who, you can say, but there's video of you saying this. There's, there's, <laughs> and, and, and just this ability to I didn't say that. Uh, now, we'll, what will be the judgment of history? This is a pathological, narcissistic liar or... Will people come out with it? Hey, you can't believe anything that you hear because I, I I was told that a lot. Or it doesn't matter what you hear. So yeah. I mean, I know we were talking about the um, the virus, but but this could be how it's interpreted in in history. Is will people accept that it happened the way? It, will there be an official, uh, basically agreed upon consensus? Once there is a determination of how it originated and spread and that what the, the death total will end up being or the numbers of infections, will people accept that? Or will there be this segment that says, ah, it's just all part of the hoax. <laughs> it's all part of the conspiracy. Yeah. And that, you know, I, I would hate to have that kind of world because to me, that's just too unsettling. That's like waking up and everything you're, is just, you know, you put your arm through a wall then. I mean, nothing is real. So, yeah, you know, and, and we're all teachers and, and Jose and I are probably are at the perfect point in as eighth grade and seventh grade teachers to start teaching kids how to, you know, discern between fact and fiction. And, and we just need to all do a better job of this and, and to get kids to believe that there really are facts in the world. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is a truth. And, and the interpretation, you know, you, that's where you can say, okay, sure. I, I disagree with this right but but you got to know some facts to make that and um as i say perception is you know your values your beliefs your faith your you know and it can be factual or not and you probably can't change perceptions very readily i i do things like that with race and and what race scientifically tells you and what it doesn't but People's perceptions are, you know, they think race tells you a lot more about a person than it scientifically does. Um, so, yeah, this could be a, a learning lesson. And, and actually, Joel, you mentioned that's kind of what I'm like with my idea of comparing the Spanish influenza with this situation is that to get at what really did happen, because you had people saying this isn't what authorities are saying. But it was, and and yep. people don't really dispute that now. I mean, they're, you know, they probably know the belief is somewhere between fifty and a hundred million people died 
in, in that uh, because of the lack of knowledge of transmission and uh, because, I mean, we know a lot more about science and medicine and we should be doing a much better job. And I think we are yeah. <laughs> compared to a hundred years ago. But that's where you know, the lesson would be. Facts really do matter. <laughs> I mean, we really yeah. know our facts. I think that kind of takes me back to, uh, you know, during the George W. Bush administration, when Stephen Colbert had the uh, Colbert Report, mm -hmm. and uh, he had that word truthiness. Yeah. And it was all about, you know, it's true because it feels good. Yeah. And I've seen since then where it's true because it feels good has devolved into there's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as facts. We all have alternative facts. Mm -hmm. And uh, you get to kind of create your own reality. I think that's kind of what, what's happening now amongst some yeah. uh, in our country right now, tragically. Yeah. No, that, that's absolutely the last three and a half years. Yeah. And you know, that you reminded me of that, the, the truthiness. And it always made me cringe because it was very funny. But then it was like, but that's really serious. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. There's light of it. Heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> that we're, we're laughing about this as if eh, it doesn't matter, but it, it does. <laughs> totally. Um, and speaking of truth, we don't mind bashing Trump on this show, by the way. Um, in the last episode, I had a whole bunch of clips from his Access Hollywood interaction with Billy Bush. So we don't mind bashing Trump. Yeah. But he seems to think he's handling this amazingly well. And he's compared himself favorably to Lincoln. Yeah. Kind of, you mentioned earlier that you could go on about Lincoln. Maybe take a few minutes to... <laughs> Yeah. Is Trump on par with Lincoln? What do you think? Uh, uh, you know, when he did the interview recently at the Lincoln Memorial, I was really surprised that the National Park Service let him do that. Apparently, the head of the Park Service, the Interior Department, overrode objections because they don't typically let them do that. Personally, I found it just revolting. Yeah. Uh, any president, but let alone Trump. You're looking at the two ends of the spectrum. I think you're looking at the greatest president and the worst president uh, uh, by far. And at yep. this point, uh, academic historians would, would support that. They have ranked Trump as the worst president to this point. Clearly, he would have a lot to say uh, about that, Trump would, and, and they would all be fake. Uh, or out to get him or something. But no, I mean, uh, you know, when you assess a president on um, accomplishments, crisis management, their appointments, their personal character, how they, um, uh, their decision making, uh, what, what they actually, you know, what legislation they did. I mean, I think Donald Trump fails time and time again. I mean, he, to me, is a person who has zero empathy. I, I don't think he knows the difference between lies and the truth because it's all just whatever suits him at the moment. And yeah, he's, you know, he's 73 and he's been doing this, I think, since he was a child from what I have understood about his life that there are winners and losers in the world and he will always be a winner 
And even when he's not a winner, he's on the road to being a winner. I mean, it is it is impossible for him to acknowledge that he failed. And and that's one of the tragedies to me is that that makes it impossible for him to express true empathy and sympathy for people because to him it's a weakness. And everything must be strength because that's part of his idea of what winning is. And so yeah. uh, I think it's it has so much to do with with this. We talked about the masks earlier and wearing a mask is an act of kindness. But you've got all these men walking around who think it's maybe effeminate or it's it's um, somehow like makes them look um, less than noble to uh, to wear a mask and i think that comes directly from trump yeah it makes a, it's a weakness it, right there's it a weakness um and and he's not he's not going to show it even if, even if everyone can see his weakness where i mean lincoln if there's anything about him it was it was the opposite of his empathy his his suffering he he wrote yeah. hundreds of letters to people of families who, you know, who had been killed in wars, uh, in the war. And I mean, he, he suffered along with them. He, he stayed up, you know, in that film, Lincoln, it, it got a lot of that correct. I mean, he's up late at night in the telegraph office waiting for news of reports of what has happened on the battlefield. And the man was beyond reproach when it came to his personal character. And his political guile, his his genius for for finding a way through uh, the slave issue with with like the Emancipation uh, Proclamation, and you know his the words, of course, the guy with the second grade education who said some of the greatest things that Americans have because oh, what a wordsmith! It's just shocking to to read. It gives us all goosebumps. He studied, he studied literature, he loved history, he loved language, he loved alliteration. Trump has open disdain for all these things. He, I mean, it's not that he's poorly educated. He disdains, he dislikes it. He seems to revel in it. You know, when he says, uh, I, I know more than the generals, I know as much as any doctor, I know, I mean, I'm a, I mean who calls himself a genius? A stable genius, yeah. even. I mean, I can say that without parity, without without world. self-awareness, <laughs> is is a sign of the the demented nature of his his worldview and his personal view. He can't see him for what he is, and and you know Lincoln, one of you know a lot of good presidents, they they have a, a sense of humor and a sense of humor about themselves, and you can deflect things with humor. I, I have never heard Donald Trump say the slightest thing that's funny or a joke or anything. Ooh. It's 1984. I mean. Let's have a campaign against bullying when you have the ultimate bully as your as your spouse. Let's uh, talk about draining the swamp and fill it up with our relatives and and our bootlicking toadies. I mean, it everything about him is I think going to go into history as oh my gosh, who could be worse to this point than him? Where Lincoln, I mean. <laughs> He made such excellent appointments. Uh, I mean, I really think he and George Washington, in their ability to 
see things for what they were, to make the right tactical decisions, to surround themselves with people who challenged, uh, who didn't agree. Trump wants none of that. He wants everyone to agree with him. And I mean, it, it's it's sickening to, you know, when go around the table, everyone say something great about me. And again, there's no self-parity in this. This is something the man needs, apparently a, a constant flow of praise, where Lincoln was so criticized. Trump is so, you know, saying I'm the most criticized. Trump deserves the criticism. <laughs> Trump deserves yeah. it. Lincoln was hated because he had high principles and opposed slavery and did not, you know, he didn't please all the Northerners. And, and he, he saw the goals and he was willing to take the heat to achieve those goals. Trump is the ultimate man-child who, who folds at the first bit of criticism. Any question he doesn't like, he'll tell the reporter that it's nasty and and they're a terrible person he'll just say it to them any anybody knows you know you you've you've got to be able to take criticism and especially as president my gosh uh, lincoln was so much more criticized and hated and reviled and yet i that's why i point out to students look what he says in his addresses to the south you're our friends you can't be our enemies We'll be together. We'll bind up our wounds. You know, we'll, but I'm to rise above that uh, at the beginning of the war when it's uncertain, at the end of the war when you have won and you're still saying basically peace with, without victors, with honor. And wow, I mean, here's a Trump, people aren't even against him and he makes them his enemies. Because they simply ask him a question that he perceives as critical, uh, and, and he falls apart. Uh, he and he, he lashes out at everyone. I mean, imagine Abraham Lincoln leading the country through this. How you get solid, consistent? We're in this together. You know, love your neighbor. <laughs> kind of. You know, Lincoln would be wearing a mask and making a joke probably about his big nose. Uh, <laughs> he uh, would not be taking hydroxychloroquine. Oh, no, no, no. And, You know, uh, I, and Jose, you and I have, have talked about, are we going to get through this unscathed or what's going to happen? And I was just thinking just now that, you know, he probably has been responsible for thousands and thousands of deaths through his incompetence, yeah. you know? So I guess yeah. uh, it just struck me just now that we haven't come through it unscathed. And, and this is, you know, this is how we're, we're, um, we're dealing with his incompetence and his degeneracy really. Yeah. He'll take no responsibility, but that's yeah. then the, the task of history is to, is to write it that way. And I try very hard and I've, you know, I've been at, teaching for about 25 years and to say that, you know, I want to be impartial and respect different points of view, but I've made it very clear to students that when it comes to Trump, there's not to me anything to defend. There, there's nothing. I mean, I honestly cannot find a single redeeming quality in him. And I really can't say that about almost anybody in history. 
Yeah. I really believe that. I can't think of anything that is good about him uh, at all. <laughs> it's so interesting, uh, Roger, because Jose and I have had this discussion where we talk about Trump and we come back together afterwards and feel like, are we being super biased? But then we realize, no, you know what? We just brought up facts the whole time and it made us feel kind of tawdry for being so biased. But when it, when they're all facts, um, it's it's totally legit, even as a junior high teacher. Yeah. No, I, I I absolutely agree with you, and that's the sure. I mean, that's my that's my political preferences. But uh, and, and at one point, I said that George W. Bush was the worst president that uh, we had, and I believed that at that time. But but this person is just uh, beyond redemption, in in, in my opinion, and uh, you know. Uh, uh, name a topic. I can't think of anything that I say. Yeah, that was a good thing. Uh, every th- every time I see something, it's like uh, I would have gone the other way. Uh, th- this is this is heartless. This is uncaring. This is bad for the environment. This is you know this is racist. This is misogynistic. This is um, divisive. This it just goes on. <laughs> I just. That he can barely utter anything uh, about, and it's false when he you know, says about, oh, one life is too many. He doesn't care how many people have died, except if it hurts his poll numbers. Um, yeah. it, it's, there, there's just too much footage and too many examples of him showing a complete lack of, of understanding of people's uh, suffering. You know, they used to say Herbert Hoover didn't understand the, the the people suffering in the depression. Trump is that magnified. Uh, he just he doesn't get it what it what it means. Every time I show a chart or graph of unemployment or something, I, say, I always I always say there's there's so much pain and loss and and trouble in those numbers, those lines on a people. We're humans, and he's, he, he just, it doesn't matter to him. I think he has accepted the, the death, and he can spin it, that it's, it could have been worse, so therefore, again, I'm a winner. Uh, he can't say this was a terrible, terrible thing to happen to the country, because that's not what happens to winners. Winners say it could have been $2 million. It's only whatever now, 90,000, 91,000. And um, so we've done a great job. And we keep saying that. Whatever the number gets to, we've done a great job. We couldn't have done better. It's a sickness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've had you for an hour now. So um, <laughs> sorry about I'm, that. It keeps oh. going. I'm sorry. We, <laughs> we want to respect your time. Yeah. But um, as we wrap up, just one final question. Looking forward, um, with your history cap on, how do you think this will all affect Trump's reelection or maybe even just Americans in general? Well, I mean, it won't surprise you that I say I hope it will end his, his reelection. Given what happened in 2016, I think everybody is uncertain as to whether he can pull it <laughs> off or not. I think, I think he's going to have a hard time getting reelected, but then it's going to be how does Biden do it himself? 
I mean, he's got his own bags of problems. The Republicans are going to come at him as hard as they possibly can. Who Biden picks as his vice president will be very important. So uh, I think that this absolutely took away, of course, the, the, the main thrust of the re-election, which was how the economy had, had done well in, in statistics, certainly it had uh, for many people under, under Trump. And, um, and now that that's gone, to me, if it's, a, if it's an election based on what Trump has done as president, I think he loses. Because they'll say, well, how'd you handle this great crisis? You, you were terrible at it. What is the path for him is to be so negative and to be so uh, loose with the facts that, as he did with, with Hillary, uh, to portray Biden as old and doddering and uh, whatever he can whatever he can smear him with, um, there's a there's a chance for him to um, to win. I mean, he you know you have to remember. Well, and I do know I'm sure that he lost by what was it almost three million votes, and and he carried some of those states by tens of thousands of votes. So um, I think he has a narrow path to re-election, but he is president, and that gives him a lot of that gives him a lot of uh, possibilities to use that power, but. I think this will do him in, but I, I just I think for my own psyche I I can't uh, I can't say it will and then be wrong. It's going to be too yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. That's why I refuse to to know for sure because it would just be just heartbreaking. Yeah yeah. Well, I haven't gotten over twenty sixteen. I I never I, I watched the election that night. Once I started hearing oh. about results, I I just I could never go back to those things. I can't even watch the parodies of the debates on Saturday Night Live. I can't watch anything because the result was just too painful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, totally. But it's been much worse than I thought it would be. I thought it would be kind of like a bad joke. I thought it would be like, well, if people really want him, well, I didn't realize just how how bad it could possibly be. Much worse than I would have anticipated. And uh, For sure. I have a basically, a, uh, I was given a, a blackout Trump calendar where you have his face and every day you put a black square over it. And I, I can't get it out till it's 99% done uh, because I can't stand to look. <laughs> I can't stand to look. You know, they used to say people in like Franklin Roosevelt, they'd say like the person you can't say his name. I'm almost at that point with him. There's times when I just can't say his name. Uh, yeah, like Voldemort. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm the same way, Roger. I, I flip the channel and I, I turn the radio and, and, and Christian thinks I'm crazy, but it's hard for me. It's psychologically hard. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's absolutely wearing. <laughs> so, I hear it too much from, from my kids. They'll say, stop talking about it. I, I agree. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had to take a break from Facebook and Twitter and I just have to, I had to put a pin in it because it was, it was too much. I don't do any of that social media. I don't, I don't do any. I'm so glad I don't. I just, uh, I just, uh, it's, it's too much work. And <laughs> it's, it's so the comment section will actually make you go insane. Yeah. <laughs> you, 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 you 
you truly start believing that Russia is is pushing half of it. It's incredible. Yeah, I, I do read a lot of news. My dad was a newspaper reporter, and I've always read lots and lots of news, and that's not healthy. And if you read a full New York Times, you're pretty much clinically depressed. Uh, <laughs> it has nothing to do with this administration or country. And you're like, oh, my God, is that? Oh, gosh, why do I know that now? Uh, but that is the state of the world sometimes. So, so yeah, uh, Calvin and Hobbes cartoons or sunny days on the Central Coast or, you know, beaches, those are good respites. Or talking to you guys, that's, those are, gives you hope. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining oh, us, Roger. Yeah. Yes, Professor Hall. It was really fun. Yeah. Well, it's good to know you guys are teaming up here, and now then I I see all the uh, all the episodes you've got. I'll be able to to check out on some of them. They're on conversations on tap, and again, uh, anything I can do to to help you in your in your causes and all that's that's I'm really pleased that you're doing this, Jose. So yeah, thank you. All right, good guys. seeing you, Roger. Good okay. seeing you. All right, see you later. Yeah. See ya. Okay, for our outro, Jose and I like to talk about things we're reading, watching, and um, so Jose, what you got uh, this week for your outro? You know, I've been watching a show on YouTube uh, called Hot Ones. My wife, Christina, she's the one who introduced me to this show. It's a really interesting concept. The host is a guy named Sean Evans, and it's just a black backdrop, a simple table, and in the middle of the table is a line of hot sauces of increasing heat intensity, right? Increasing Scoville levels. Right. Start with the one hot wing, and it's like nothing, right? It's very minimal heat to the last one, the last dab. It's called the last dab because they like to add an extra dab of hot sauce to the last wing. <laughs> so. And you see these, it's a great way to do an interview because you see these celebrities who are so used to sitting down for formal interviews where they get asked the same question over and over again and they get bored. Here, their yeah. mouths are on fire while he's asking them these really interesting, in-depth questions and so their minds are getting blown by the question but then they're trying to wrap their mind around how to answer the question while their mouth is on fire it's awesome and actually um my wife bought me some hot sauces from their website i've been buying some hot sauces so i have almost a whole lineup oh that's a fun thing to collect and so i've been trying the hot sauces it, it was horrible my mouth was on fire i was in excruciating pain my eyes were like tearing up snot was just coming out of my nose so gross yeah but you know it's for some way those those taste good those excruciatingly painful hot sauces that cut capsaicin in it it's actually addicting there's something I in it that, that's slightly addicting it is because i i don't mind i don't mind the burn yeah i i mean i somehow I, it's almost like that old saturday night live episode where people keep on saying oh let me try that sour milk i don't know if you've seen that yes that, but it, i keep on going back to super hot stuff that just kills me but you can't help it i'm on this um tabasco kick but it's not tabasco it's called 
I think it's called smoky Tabasco, and mm. it is to me ten times better than regular Tabasco sauce. I just love it, and everybody in my household just loves it. So that's another one for you to try if you haven't. I like the Chipotle Tabasco. Oh yeah, so good. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so check out um, Hot Ones on YouTube. Two episodes I loved. One Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay like Hell's Kitchen, twenty four hours. Could not handle the heat. He was dying. Uh, he, uh spewing profanity his trademark you know insults and whatnot and then the other one was zach efron because ah, he talks about growing up in Rosa grande and what it's like every time he comes home and there's all these people zach efron woo! so anyway nice. those two were really cool oh, i can't wait to watch it i'm on youtube so so much i just love youtube i just love all these citizens out there creating their own content to me that's just my that's that was always my dream and now it's happened so this is i just love yeah. it and speaking, so I, I don't want to step on your toes, but I, I like something. I was going to talk about something on YouTube too. This yeah. gal, actually, it's on TikTok, but it's also on YouTube. Almost everything on TikTok is also on YouTube. Her name is Sarah Cooper. Have you seen any of her stuff? Never She's heard only, of her. I, of the things that she does, I especially like the five or six or maybe seven. Um, and you do a bunch of Trump parodies, and but she's got voiceover of the goofball Trump things. And you have got to check it out. Sarah Cooper, she's mainly on TikTok, but she's also on YouTube. And she does these super, I mean, they're golden. She's a national treasure. It lifts my day when I watch her. And um, basically Trump voiceovers of him talking about his goofy, goofy things. You know, I'm not very good at the Trump voice. I have. Um, oh, you're great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I'm always down for seeing people's Trump impressions. So I'll check it out. Sarah oh, Cooper. Sarah Cooper. Nice. I'll check it out. I got a couple other YouTube things. Oh, There's course, some. Yeah. It, this is a history. This is a history episode, and so I just dig. Um, it's called. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but just go on to YouTube and look for old, old um, like San Francisco, New York footage from the early 1900s. I think you learn a ton of history just by looking. And these guys, what they do is they'll take super old footage of of. Uh, a horse and buggy just going right down Broadway or Market Street on San Francisco, and they'll totally clean it up so it looks modern. They'll actually put color onto it. And just seeing how people live that way, I think it gives a great insight into history. But just look at history. You know what else I've been doing on YouTube? I've been, since we're not going to anywhere this summer, I don't think now, we're, I'm looking at a bunch of old Rick Steves. I don't think we brought up Rick Steves um, on this channel. I don't know our podcast yet but man i've been i've been watching some of his stuff three or four times and uh, i just love going to places with rick steves is that the guy who did um golden california no that's a uh, hugh hauser and i watch a bunch of his stuff too rick steves it's almost all europe he does a little bit of turkey which i guess is still europe but um it's just all the great places to visit and it's so heartbreakingly charming the places he visits oh nice I'll have to check that out yeah. too. Traveling virtually. Yes, traveling virtually. Awesome. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us on our humble little podcast. You could do us a huge favor by subscribing to our show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts. 
And be sure to rate our show and leave a review. Your rating will help others find the show. And be sure to find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Conversation on Tap. We want to extend our greatest thanks and appreciation to Roger Hall, professor at Allen Hanson. Thanks, Roger. Yes, thank you so much. That That was fun. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Cheers, Joel. Cheers, Jose, and everybody listening. Stay healthy. Yes.